Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. If anyone epitomizes grit, determination, and heart, it's Dr. Arabia Millette. Born and raised by a single mom in housing projects in New York City's South Bronx neighborhood, she was surrounded by crime, poverty, drugs, alcohol, and despair. At 15, she was homeless, sleeping in parks, delivering drugs for dealers, and sometimes being a dealer herself. Diagnosed with mental illness, her mom tried to commit suicide and sent Arabia to live with her dad upstate. He had just left rehab for drug addiction. Dr. Merlet wound up getting involved with an older guy, got pregnant at 17. The relationship, an abusive one. In 1998, when their son was just four months old, he went into traumatic cardiac arrest and died a day later. His father was arrested, convicted, and served 16 years of a 22-year sentence. Several years later, Dr. Millette's sister was shot and killed while riding in a car. These horrors touched something in Dr. Millette. She wanted to change her life, make a difference. By 2004, she had earned a bachelor's degree. A year later, she enrolled in a medical research program. And with that came the dream of attending medical school. But reality set in. There was no way that she could pay for it. However, she met the relative of a friend who got a scholarship to study medicine in Cuba. Dr. Millette applied, got accepted, even though she didn't speak Spanish. Didn't matter. She managed to learn the language and return to the States. Dr. Millette completed her residency at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center and is an emergency medical physician at Woodhull Medical and Mental Health Center and Coney Island Hospitals, both located in Brooklyn, New York. So, Dr. Millette. Holy cow. (laughs) Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Does it ever take your breath away when you listen to introductions like this? When someone who doesn't know you Mm -hmm. rattles all this off, what does that trigger in you? To be honest with you, I'm just really a humble person, I guess because of the fact that, for one, I know my story and no one else can tell it the way I can tell it. And so when people introduce me, it, I don't know. It's so weird. It just makes me more humble and grateful that I'm alive. But they don't just introduce you as, hey, I would like right. you to meet Dr. Arabia Millette. Again, it just go back to being humble and just grateful. I just When I listen to the introductions, I mean, it's hard. I think it's difficult for people overall to introduce me in a way because of the tragedies and um, the situations that I had to overcome in order for me to become a doctor on this journey. And I could see where sometimes, like, when people introduce me, they're like, oh, my gosh, like, this happened and this happened and that happened and that happened. Whereas when I listen to other people, other doctors have been introduced, it's, it's totally different. You know, it's kind of told, more just the facts. Yeah, it's, it's just the fact they went to medical yeah, school. Right. They spoke at this. They were here. on CNN. And, and here comes Dr. Arabia Millette. Who, the, who people, who, in a sense, I'm going to use this word, right. tend to deify Forget humility for right. a minute. Right. As I'm rattling all this stuff off, there's a part of it that's deifying right. you. I spoke at a couple of events where I was introduced and the person started crying. Wow. Introduced <laughs> me. And I was like, I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know. What, I should have ran up there and hugged the person. So I just waited until they were finished. And then I went to the person and, you know, hugged them and said, thank you very much. And there was this like... I don't know. It's just I read the introduction and I just got emotional. And I'm like, it's okay. For me, it's more a humbling experience. Um, And it just reminded me constantly where I come from, where I'm at and where I'm going in life. And not to forget those things. Um, And also to realize that anyone that has experienced so much hardship in their life depends on what it is that you want out of life. Either you're going to fight and survive or you're just going to 
drown. Do you think you are defined by where you come from? Yeah, I am. So that is such a part, I am. in a sense, of your DNA. Yeah. I know we always talk about, well, it shouldn't matter what you look like, where you come from. People shouldn't define you, but we do. We are defined. I mean, I was defined since the day I was born, being a, you know born as a black woman, and knowing that there will be... There are certain barriers or certain stereotypes or certain segmentations sure. and idea, uh, ideologies that people will have of me before they meet me. Right. Uh, you know, preconceived, uh, right. yeah, preconceived notions, notions mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when they hear my name, they automatically assume, well, where's she from or what she look like? She's probably ghetto. And the reason why I say the word, I had to u- utilize the word ghetto because people said that to me. People told me in my face when I apply for jobs that as a medical assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always had a, a job in the, people say medical field, but in healthcare um, since high school. And I started off as a home health aide after my son died, then became a nursing assistant, then became a, a patient care tech at the emergency department at Westchester, Westchester, excuse me, Westchester Medical Center. And with my name alone and what I look like, people had these preconceived notions and actually treated me differently from everybody else that didn't look like me. I'm not surprised. So, yes, I am defined of where I come from and what I look like and my name and how I talk. I mean, and and I'm accustomed to it. What I try to do is I just... I just look past that and, and focus on what's more important. That's by healing people and at least trying to be a, a good example to even my my own family members, my little cousins or, you know, other children. The role and people. model, right? Yes, exactly. And people who come from communities that are similar to the community that I come from. And um, does it bother me that I'm defined by it? Sometimes I am bothered mm-hmm. by it, but mm-hmm. I can't let that stop me. Can't let that stop me from being who I am as a person, as of a course. woman. Of course. You know, of integrity and respect. I still demand my respect. No matter what you think of me, you don't have to like me. I always tell people, you don't have to like me, but you're going to respect me. See, that's me. a difference between you and I. You have to like me. Right. No. Don't worry about that. I can, listen, you do not have to like me. And I and I, I even told my residents at Coney Island, because uh, there's an emergency medicine residency program, so we train. It's pretty much a physician in training. After you graduate from medical school, you enter uh, this match to get into a residency program right. of your specialty. Right. And so my, like I did, I trained in emergency medicine in Newark, New Jersey and a residency program. So now I'm doing the same for others. And I always tell the residents all the time, listen, you don't have to like me. You really don't. You don't have to respect me, mm-hmm. but we it, it's mutual. I have to respect you. Of course. And you have to respect me. Of course. So that way you can learn your specialty and also have excellent best side manners to people that doesn't look like you, that don't look like you, who do not come from the same economic background, because I really do believe in it. Do not address a patient by their first name. You address them by sir, miss, ma'am, mister, what have you. You understand? Because I think at the end of the day, no matter where we come from, whether you are alcoholic or drug addict, you should still be respected. And um, and that's something that I, I try to get into the medical, you know, try to put into mind in the medical students and, and residents. And just always tell them, like, listen, you learn in medicine, but you need to learn the history of medicine in this country of why people respond differently to medicine or, or doctors overall, because it's always been this preconceived notion that certain group of people are a certain way and, and they should be treated differently. So I always have that perception in my mind and make sure that I don't, you know, that I that I stay true to that and, and, and still give all everybody respect as much as possible. Yeah, but that brings me to a really good question. What made you growing up want to earn respect. And where did your tenacity come from? Well, when you grow up in the hood, all right, it is all about respect. 
whether it is the person that is dealing drugs, whether it's the person that is known for fighting, like know how to fight, and everybody, you know, pretty much respect that person and know how know how to fight in the streets, whether it be, you know, your grandmother that, you know, everybody know in the projects, everybody know, um, you know, Miss So-and-so and everybody love her. So, of course, people are going to have that respect for her, whether it be the person that went to school and they did really well and they grew up in the hood and, and they were able to... I don't know, surpass everyone or get on a team or play basketball and they did fairly well. So everybody, it's a matter of respect. See, I think that's the problem that people don't understand that even in the hood, people also demand respect. No one likes to be talked down to. So for me, even though it was coming from the negative aspect of things, like whether I was getting into a fight or the people that I was rolling with, it was always this matter of respect. Did you respect yourself? For the most part, I did, but there were certain parts of my life I didn't. Um, my grandmother, she was originally from the South, may she rest in peace, and she was always about respect. And when you step into a house, you better respect her house. You're not to be yelling, you're not to be screaming, you're not to try to fight each other in the house. It's all about respect. And 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 it was so funny because even though I, I grew up the way I grew up, it's just that that was always been a part of me. Um, and even with my mother and my father and their own crisis as well, it was still a matter of respecting them. And just understanding that even though they were in a crisis, still, you know, those are your parents. You still need to respect them. I, I know it sounds a little crazy, but that's how that was something that was really to me. That's always important. Nowadays, it's it's a little different. I don't know. Unfortunately, we don't tend to respect, <laughs> respect. each other, which is a whole other issue. Oh my goodness! Which I wish there was a shot for that. Right. Some kind of a vaccination. Medication, right. Hello. Um, <laughs> Forget respect for a minute. Where did your validation come from? You know, I'm homeless. I'm, you know, working with drug dealers. I'm dealing myself. I'm drinking, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Where was your self-respect? At that moment, I didn't have validation. I don't think I had any validation and self-respect at that time because I was doing things that go against respect. Right, exactly. But it was also survival. It's about survival. For sure. I'm not saying it was right. And I'm not passing a judgment. I'm just no, no, wondering. No, no, I got you. I got you. No, no, no. Oh, no. I'm not thinking that way. I'm not thinking that way at all. I'm no, no, no. how somebody can be down path A and then do a complete 180. Right, right. And get to path B. Again, survival. You live at the moment. Every day was just like, okay, how am I going to get by this day? Where am I going to eat? How am I going to get this? How am I going to do this? So every that at that at those moments in my life, I wasn't necessarily thinking about the f- the future, the mm-hmm. long term. Mm-hmm. I was thinking more day to day survival. Of course, you know. And what did that give me validation? I think somewhat in a respect, yes, because when you grow up in such a, in poverty, when you grow up in extreme poverty, when you grow up in a in a very harsh and tough environment, you you tend to you have survival tactics. You 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 start to learn how to survive sure. without much and with very little. I think that's where the validation comes in, where I, you know, I speak to some people, <laughs> some people I speak to, and they tell me their their problems when they come into the emergency room, and it's not to take away from them, but I, I often said to them, I said, sweetheart, yeah, mm-hmm. it is okay. Or like, walk a mile in my walk shoes. In my, right, walk a mile in my shoes, and or the shoes that I had at that time. Now sure. it's a different story, but, mm-hmm. you know, what you're going through is not... I don't want to take away from people's stories, but it's not as bad when you hear of other stories of other people that have that have lost everything or this never had in the first place or um or just, just and managed never to reinvent love. themselves right. too. Right. Exactly. So I think 
for me, the validation came in because of the survival tactics. Where and I know it was wrong that that I was in, um, you know, hanging out with people that were committing crimes. But they also, too, have a story. And a lot of us were coming from broken homes. And we actually found, you know, we actually found each other in a sense where we were like family and they had to take care of one another. And that's and that's what happens when I mean, really and truly, even with gangs, that's how gangs are formed. Because when you come, when you when you're dealing with people who are um, coming from nothing and, and disenfranchised, disenfranchise, yeah. exactly, or at a disadvantage, yes. then people will come together. And of course, a, a gang will form. Of course, you know, people will. What's the ties that bind? And like my grandma would say, birds of a feather flock together. You know, so it's just the same concept where that, okay, this is where my validation starts right here. It's from the people who actually look like me, who came from the same community as me who actually experienced some of the same struggles that I experienced and it could possibly help me to get out of those, you know, those same struggles. And that was in my mindset. So everything else didn't matter. I didn't care about people judging me. I didn't care about what people thought of me. I was just more so more so concerned about surviving. Yes, but when you look back at your life mm-hmm. and some of the really seminal moments in the mm-hmm. good and bad, mm-hmm. but let's go to the bad for a second. Mm-hmm. So you meet a man and then you get into a relationship, and probably the joys of all of our lives, even though it can be extremely challenging, is the birth of a child. Right. And then, you know, the unthinkable happens. Well, the time that—at that time when I met my son's murderer, hmm. who was the father hmm. of my child, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't a joyful moment. First of all, he was way older than me. Um, as a matter of fact, I was 15 when I met him. Um, started and and then around sixteen, that's when things became more serious in terms of me moving into his house because he was well older. Than, I'm gonna be honest with you. I was fifteen. He was twenty eight when I met him. Um, he already had a child. His child at the time was like four or five years old. Um, but he supposedly wasn't with his daughter's mother. For me, when I met him, because I was introduced to introduced to him by a friend of mine who was also was same age as me, but she was dating his cousin. I mean, to be honest with you, we were we were black girls lost in the street. And then for me, it was more so that that father figure. Gotcha. It's, you yeah. understand? Yeah. Like having I, I, that yeah. father figure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, having a man that loves you and tell you that you're beautiful and you know you can have the world and you know I'll take care of you. So you drank his Kool Aid. I drank the Kool Aid. Unfortunately, I definitely did. I drank the Kool-Aid. And it was very hard because, again, he's obviously I was a child and he was the adult. And a lot of things took place um, after I was committed to being in this relationship with this guy with a lot of abuse, um, psychological, physical abuse, even financially abuse as well. People forget that there's a such thing as being financially abused by a partner. Mm-hmm. And financial abuse meaning that he was the one that was bringing in money, so to speak, because he was out in the streets and he was also living a criminal life as well. And so I was dependent on him. Yes, and he determined what you right. were going to get monetarily exactly. from him. Mm. But more so than anything, it was more the physical and verbal abuse that took place that was um, that was very hard to deal Did with. Did you feel you deserved it and that you weren't worthy? Ever since I was a child, I've always felt that I wasn't worthy. Not now, but mm-hmm. since I was a child, because of domestic violence took place in my household. Mm-hmm. Domestic violence was always around me, whether it's in my household, whether it was at a cousin household, you know, or even friends of mine that I grew up with where domestic violence took place in their house. I was always surrounded by it. And so in my head, I thought it was normal for a long period of time. And I was accustomed to it. This is how people show love to you. This is how they express themselves by putting their hands on you. 
And so I've, for a long time since I was a child, I've always felt that I wasn't any, I, I was nobody. I, I felt like that being black was a curse and this is what happens when you're black. I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm being very, very honest with you that being black was a curse and because we're cursed, this is what we're supposed to go through. This is what we deserve. Right. You know, if you look inside of your body, you know, mm -hmm. whatever was in there that propelled you, obviously connected to your mm -hmm. mind as well, to just keep moving on and plowing ahead, whatever that strength, mm -hmm. that grit, like I said, or determination, that you, in spite of what how you were treated, obviously believed in you, mm -hmm. that you were able to get a high school diploma. Well, and since the age move. of five years old, I've always wanted to become a doctor. And that, you know, this wasn't something that was out of the blue. Oh, I want to be a doctor. No, this is, I've had dreams since the age of five, despite what my family and I were going through, despite at the age of 15 being abused by my um, son's murderer, um, despite even failing out of college, because at one point I got kicked out of, I got kicked out of college. But I still had the same dream over and over again that I will become a physician. And what field and what specialty, I wasn't too sure until the tragic deaths of my sister as well as my son occurred. And the two ER doctors, now, like you said before in the introduction, it was two separate incidents. Yes. You know, many years apart and two different physicians, two different towns or cities where it took, you know, each um, victim. Event occurred, yeah. Event occurred. But the thing is, is that those two events is what propelled me to become an ER doctor. At the age of five, I remember just going to sleep one night and because my sisters and I, we slept in one bed. And I just, I remember I had, the dream that I had was that I saw myself in a white, like a white long coat and dark blue pants, like navy blue pants. And I saw the the walls had blue. The walls were painted blue. It was the same dream that occurred over and over again, over and over again for 20 something years. Until when I got to Cuba, that was the same blue walls that I saw in a dream. Oh, and I had the white coat. And, and blue uh, and trousers. Dark, oh, blue wow. trousers. Because wow. that was the uniform in Cuba because we had to wear uniforms yeah, in Cuba. That's crazy. So soon when I stepped off the plane and we met with the Cuban government and Fidel Castro and then we were taken to our school to unpack our bags and get a you know, and, and go into the dormitory because you lived in a dorm with other people. I was like, Oh my god, these are the same blue walls that I seen in my dream. So this was meant to happen. This was meant to happen. But when you're envisioning what, and when you're dreaming and fantasizing about being a doctor, I guess it never occurred to you that you didn't necessarily see a lot of you in white coats. Right. Even today, you're an anomaly. Yeah, exactly. You know? Because when I walk into the into a patient's room and I say, hi, I'm Dr. Arabia Mollett. I'm your ER doctor. That's a double take, isn't it? Oh, there? my gosh. Oh. Does that make you nuts or you just let it roll off of you? It depends on the situation. I remember, I won't say the the where I, where I work where I do currently work because I also do locums or per diem in another in Long Island, mm -hmm. in a certain part of Long Island. Okay, well, forget it, the Hamptons. Well, the Hamptons, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was the only black woman working in that emergency department as as a physician. Do you expect to get a reaction from me to that? No, I to me in my my reaction is yes, so. <laughs> And the funny thing was one day, a patient, now this is a, 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 a woman in her, maybe like her mid or late 30s, early 40s, said to me, when I introduced myself, she's like, mm-mm, no. I said, she's mm -mm, not treating no, me, what? right? Right. You're not going to treat me. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I don't want your black hands touching me. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I've been called the N-word. To your face. To my face because I didn't want to give um, dilaudid. This is in Hamptons. Dilaudid to a patient that was felt entitled to getting dilaudid. It was a pain medication. And um, I've, you know, I've walked in a room and, and say, for example, I speak to a patient and then the patient, especially men, um, they will give me, they're very condescending. Some of them are very condescending. So they'll get on the phone, they'll call a primary care doc. And then when I come back into the room, they say, well, I already spoke to my doctor. And my doctor said, you have to do this. And I have to tell them, I said, let me tell you something. You're, you're on my turf, You're on my, right. I am the ER doctor. Now, if your doctor want to come here and work in the emergency department, then he and she can more, they're more than welcome to come and work here and treat you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have to, and I have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as being in a more predominantly black and Hispanic community, the response is a little different. More often, I get praised a lot. A lot of people say, you know, I'm so proud of you. I never had a black doctor before. I have a daughter or a son that um, that wants to become a doctor, and I'm going to tell her all about you, and hopefully that she'll get a chance to meet you. And most of the time, is is um, you know, it's a positive feedback, positive right, reinforcement right, from, right. Um, especially more so in areas like that in the urban in the urban community. Not all the time, but most of the time. Um, I usually get positive feedback. And, and don't get me wrong, in the Hamptons, I've actually gotten more positive feedback than negative. I'm just pointing out the subtle differences sometimes. That's where, how, where or I so not so subtle. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I definitely got a lot of positive feedback in working in the Hamptons. Um, and I love the nurses over there. They're wonderful people. And we spoke about racism. We spoke about, you know, and they, they always say, I can imagine some of the things that you go through being a black woman that is a doctor. And then we talk about these things. So I, I appreciate that the conversations That's great. have changed. That, and, and that, that we, we have the conversation. Exactly. The issue of going to school in Havana. I mean, just parenthetically, I went to Cuba illegally in 2001 and snuck in through Mexico and had with my (laughs) son who had graduated college and who majored in Spanish and another young man. And my line to him was, you say I pay, you know, Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I didn't speak Spanish Mm -hmm. and we had the best time. Talk about pulling a curtain back and feeling like we were in the 50s, which I'm sure you must have experienced also. Mm -hmm. But what the hell was that like in addition to which that you weren't fluent in the language right. that you would have to be and it's not like buenos dias no, it's, it's talking about drugs and yep. and you know everything uh, yeah. yeah everything um i sit in awe of you woman well first of all it's so crazy the fact that my cousin so my cousin was the one that introduced me to the relative of her ex fiance and the one of the things that he mentioned to me he said you know i heard so much about you you are you will do excellent in this program the only thing is that everything is taught in spanish i said no problem i'm hungry when you're hungry for something you're going to do everything that you can to feed yourself. And that was the same thing I felt about becoming a, phys- becoming a, a doctor, was that I was so hungry. I wanted, to, I wanted this so bad. It did not matter to me if I had to learn it in Chinese, if I had to learn it in French, if I had to learn it in Spanish or German. This was meant for me to have, and this was the only opportunity for me to, to accomplish this. Were you the only one like you there, meaning somebody from the States who didn't speak Spanish and was going to no, med school? No, I wasn't. Actually, the scholarship always been in existence because in in Cuba education is free right housing as well as health care however the scholarship was made available to poor people of color all over the world in 1999 except for the United States the United States were not even a part of that I'm sure until, we were persona non grata right, obviously exactly yeah. and so in 2000 the Black Caucus Congress under the Bush administration 
heard about the scholarship, went to Cuba, met with Fidel Castro, brought along what's called IFCO Passage for Peace, the late great Reverend Lucius Walker, who I miss terribly because he was the one that helped me along the way, sat down with the Cuban government and Fidel Castro to talk to him about, well, you you know, you talk about pretty much saying to him, what they told me was that, you know, we you given all these scholarships to third world countries, you know, especially for people of color, but you forgot one third world country, and that's called Black America. And so Fidel Castro came to New York in 2001 at the Riverside Drive Church. When you went over there, he came over well, here. Well, when he heard I was coming no! over, <laughs> getting out of here. And he made the announcement that, um, that poor wild? people can um, have the opportunity to study medicine for free mm-hmm. in Cuba. I didn't leave to 2006, but many of my friends who came from Compton, they came from Brooklyn, South Bronx, Philadelphia, New Orleans, it was Mississippi. I mean, poor people um, at the time, especially people of color, left to Cuba to study medicine in Cuba. How was that experience for you? How was living in Havana? It, you know, it's so funny because I'm, I, again, I came from a background of survival, so I'm, I'm accustomed So you're pretty to, adaptable. Right. <laughs> very adaptable. I can adjust to any, pretty, pretty much almost any situation, whether it's hard or, or, you know, whether it's negative or for the positive, it doesn't matter. I can adjust to things. And so when I got off the plane, I said, oh, my God, I'm in Cuba. And I would have never, ever thought in my life that I would actually wind up going to medical school in Cuba. You got to remember, I left in 2006 under the Bush administration. So Bush was still in power. It was very hard being under the Bush administration, going to medical school in Cuba. Couldn't really, you know, at that time it was difficult to have, your family couldn't even really send money through Western Union because of the rules and the regulations. Exactly, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was told now that there's, I'm supposed to be going back to Cuba next year to visit, you know, to go see friends and family, whatever, but I was told now there's Wi-Fi. When I lived there, there was no Wi-Fi. There was hardly any transportation. Um, you know, it was it was tough. But the thing was that because I came from a background of nothing. <laughs> yeah, this was not a shock to it you. It was not a shock to me. <laughs> yeah. I really felt like I was at home. And home is where you may, where you lay your head at. Right. So I put in my mind for the next seven years of my life. This is my home. I have to learn the language. I got to get accustomed to the culture. This is my home. And that's what I had to do. Did it become a natural act for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was hanging out. Uh, you know, I, I knew everybody on the block and where I lived in Havana and they became family to me and, and you know, they quote unquote adopted me like they mm-hmm. family members. So mm-hmm. they are my family. As a matter of fact, when my family came down to visit, we became, they they like, oh, that's my uncle, that's my aunt. Like, you know, it, it became like a big family ordeal. I remember, you know, we would study hours and hours and hours throughout the night to study for an exam and, and the lights went off and what we did was that we tied flashlights around our head or we got candles and we just burned the candle so we could sit there and study. Crazy. I remember times that we were delivering babies in the dark because the hospital ran, uh, the, the electricity in the hospital just suddenly turned off and, and the thing was the generator wasn't working so we still delivering babies in the dark with the flashlights, had flashlights in our hand or tied it around our head. Cuba is a country that is so beautiful and so complicated to understand, but there's so much beauty. It's a tough place in the sense that if you're, it's hard to explain to people what it's like to live in Cuba because you have to live there to understand the complexity of Cuba. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've never felt so confident in myself until I went to Cuba. And that was the thing that the Cuban professors wanted to make sure that we have was confidence in ourselves. Every day they gave us, you know, some sort of um, words of encouragement, inspiration for us to look forward to becoming a doctor and not give up. Where 
when I speak to my colleagues now, some of my own colleagues here in the United States and what they experience going to medical school here in the United States is two totally different things. I bet. Things. I bet. They said they've been put down. They've been called dismissed. names. They've been dismissed. You know, things like that. Where in Cuba, it wasn't like that. I wasn't dismissed. Um, I was encouraged more so than anything in the world. Did you go back and forth at all? or did you During get- the summertime. I came back to school, and during the summer when I came home, it's not like I got a chance to hang out because I had to study for the board exams in order for me to get into res- residency here in the United States. So every, sum- every time I came home, I was studying. Dr. Arabia Millette, we've run out of time. We did. <laughs> I honestly can't thank you enough. That's the joy of a show like this. I meet the greatest ladies for whatever they're doing, whether they're dancers or doctors right. or divas. You know, it but doesn't... You, you're it, a diva. <laughs> I'm oh, a diva. I you are. Well, I was thinking of it singing opera, oh, <laughs> which please. I can't do. That would be the quickest way We are all divas in all, in all of our room. ways because everybody, all of us have a story. It's what you get out of it and it's how you react to... And it's how... How you make it work and how right. you you set the bar really high. And I think that, forgive all the cliches and all the gushing, you're a hell of a role model. And it has Thank been nothing you. short of my pleasure and honor to get to meet and have more than a conversation oh, with yeah, you. Definitely, it's definitely. been wonderful. My grandmother always said to me, Molette, I know you're going through a lot, but these problems are just temporarily. It only becomes permanent if you put in your mind that your problems are permanent. So either you're going to go and fight or you're just going to sink and swim. That you can be a mistress of your own fate. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I never understood until I got older, and I said, okay, Grandma, there now you... that you rest in peace, I understand. Perfect way to end. Thank you again. It was great to meet you. Thank you. Thank Join you. us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Everybody,